Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of The Knot Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Rivals of Ixalan and all the new cards in the new set that have been spoiled. I'm your host, Peter Ingram, member of metagamegurus.com, and today I'm joined with a man who really needs no introduction, Seth Manfield. How's it going, Seth? Hey, how's it going, Pete? I'm good here. Um, pretty excited for Rivals, not going to lie. Yeah, uh... Typically, with a second set to an originating set, people kind of lose hype. But I think there's a lot of things to be excited about with Rise of Black Swan. Yeah, I think um, people are pretty... Uh, they're getting a little bit fed up with the current standard format. So I'm happy to uh, be looking at some some new cards. But I feel like that's always where we're at a few months into a set. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like It's very possible that after all of this, in two months, we're just still complaining about energy. But hopefully not. Hopefully tribal can make a comeback and i think that there's a lot of stuff in the set for tribal and i think that tribal is definitely being pushed towards constructed and i really hope that it can compete with energy on that level um before we dive into that though i just want to congratulate you on recently becoming a pro tour champion and just the crazy amount of success that you've had has it has it like sunk in yet for you yeah it's pretty cool um it's always nice to have just won a big tournament you know once you get a year away from a big win or or you just gradually grow away from it right if you continue to play and you're not winning then it's like oh it feels further away right now the pro tour win is still pretty fresh so that always is nice and um yeah it's, it's a pro tour so i think it's probably the toughest tournament that magic has to offer so i'm very happy to have got a trophy there Tours are among the toughest tournaments, if not the toughest. You'll be kind of reminiscing when you're sitting in the King of the Hill seat if they still do that at Pro Tours. It's, it's been a while since I've been to one. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, I don't just automatically start uh, losing. But I'm, I'll be ha- like ev- anything I do beyond this at the next Pro Tour is kind of just gravy, right? Like I'm a mashed potatoes guy, so I, I like my gravy. All right, fair enough. Well, congratulations again, and uh, let's get into the Rivals of Ixalan. So uh, I'm going to be going through mythicspoiler.com, pretty good website, and uh, I know that you're looking at MTG Salvation, which is the website I've used for years, but upon finding this one, I've I've actually preferred it a little bit. But uh, let's just go from top to bottom, uh, talk about some of the cards that I think are going to be pretty strong, and maybe we can get your opinion on them. Let me, but, let me ask you one question before we start, right? Because you... You were involved in designing cards, right? So was Rivals of Ixalan one of the sets you worked on? Yes, I, I did work on this uh, from R&D. I had a pretty heavy hand on a lot of the cards here. So I am responsible for a lot of what we're about to talk about. So so why are you asking me when I could just be asking you how good the cards are? Because clearly if you design them, you know exactly how good they are and what their uses are. Well, that is true. I have a, I have a pretty good idea of how good the cards are. That, but that being said, you know, R&D can only get so much right in with, you know, the amount of people that are allocate, allocated in the office. So it's really nice to get newer opinions on cards. Plus, you know, we don't have world champion Seth Manfield in the building to tell us what's what. So I need, I need your opinion too, Seth. All right. Well, I appreciate you pumping up my opinion a little bit, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to have any more weight here than yours. Uh, yeah, that's totally true. I mean, without having actually played these cards and got them down, it's difficult to say what is definitive. But I mean, just a, a first opinion is always nice. 
So let's start off with Azor the Lawbringer. This card changed a bunch throughout the FFL, but uh, it's a two white, white, blue, blue, six, six flying ETB. Each opponent casts instance of sorcery spells during the their next turn. And when it attacks, you can pay Sphinx's Revelation mana and draw X and gain X life. Yeah, I mean, the mana cost is pretty prohibitive, right? As soon any as soon as you look at two colorless white, white, blue, blue, you already know. All right, I have to be a big mana deck, and I have to be playing white and blue. So you're already restricted there. Um, but this is clearly going to be a bomb um, in limited for sure. So if I see it, I'm grabbing it and just probably looking to draft blue white um i'm not sure how much constructed play it's gonna see so right now we have harness lightning that would be able to kill it you know on on your next turn because if they're if they're tapped out they can't cast anything on their turn so they can cast it before you attack on your next turn so right now we have harness lightning can kill it and rasks contempt but there's really not that many other options so I am curious if this card will be reasonable for that reason. But you just named like the two best removal spells in the format. That that is definitely true. I did I did name that. But if you have the ability to untap this card in play and then you can have some counter magic up, maybe you can protect your Azor. I don't know. That's all I'm saying. You know, it seems it seems like a card that is a more casual card. Uh it's probably got some applications. Um in commander or what have you I'm, I'm not really sure i don't really play um many formats that aren't modern and standard moving on to the blue green merfolk lord rare uh kumena tyrant of araska is a three mana two four it has a few abilities tap and untap merfolk it gains unblockable tap three untap merfolk you control draw a card and then tap five untap merfolk Put a plus one as a counter on each Merfolk you control. Well, I'm pretty excited to see a Merfolk Lord. Uh, I think a lot of us were looking for some strong Merfolk cards in Ixlan, and we didn't really see a Merfolk deck in standard, right? So I think with Rivals of Ixlan, there may be more of a push. And so this kind of reminds me a lot of Cryptbreaker, right? Which we saw see a ton of play in the Zombies deck. Um, so sure, it is three mana, but you're getting that same effect, and you also have a, a creature that can actually block. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty unlikely that you get five Merfolk into play quickly, but, I mean, if we see something that makes Merfolk creature tokens, that would be pretty sweet. So I guess we'll have to wait and see the rest of the spoiler, how good this card ends up being, because it's going to be directly correlated to how many other good Merfolk are in the set. That is true. Uh, speaking of Merfolk Lords, there is actually a 2-mana two 2-2. Two, two. Other Merfolk creatures you control get plus one plus one in the set. Yeah, and that's Merfolk Mistbinder, I believe. And that kind of... I mean, that would go in the same deck as the Kumana Tyrant. And I'm actually pretty surprised to see that you guys elected to print this card at 2-mana. I mean, it's essentially on par with Lord of Atlantis. I guess it doesn't give Island Walk, but still... Definitely a powerful effect for only for a two mana investment. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm pretty sure that as of like you know new R and D design and stuff like that, just land walk in general isn't a thing anymore. That and like protection just really aren't aren't a thing anymore. Sure, interesting. 
Well, maybe they'll bring some of that stuff back. Who knows? All right, moving on. Uh, we have a Lend of the Dusk Rose. It's a four mana, one, one, lifelink. When another creature dies, put a plus one's encounter on Alenda. And then when Alenda dies, create X11 white vampire tokens with lifelink, where X is Alenda's power. So immediately when I look at this, it seems like there's a tribal push, right? Which makes sense. Um, I would personally love to see a competitive vampire deck, a competitive mer- merfolk deck, etc., etc. So we're seeing a blue-green merfolk mythic now we're seeing a similar vampire mythic uh that is playable depending on you have to build your deck around it obviously um so if we see maybe some sacrifice outlets now this isn't whenever another non-token creature dies it's whenever another creature dies period so Vampire decks typically want to be making a lot of tokens, putting them in the graveyard. So I could see this kind of evolving into a go-wide type of Vampire's deck. Um, that would be the general idea. Yeah, I kind of view this card as the ultimate creature mirror match trump. And I think it has a lot of applications with possibly Winding Constrictor or just being in a general Vampire deck. So my hope is high for this card. I think it has the potential to be quite good. All right. Well, that makes me want to immediately buy four copies um, because you were the one who was involved in designing this card. So I appreciate the tip for sure. <laughs> very, very nice, Seth. Yeah, yeah. That, that's great. I really, truly have, like, despite testing these cards, it's very hard to get, you know, a complete understanding of where the cards are going to be. And despite me wanting this card to be good, I could easily see it not seeing play. So you yeah. go ahead. And purchase the purchase them, and I hope that it works out well for you. But I really don't know how it's going to go for you. Well, let, let me ask you this question, Pete. Say you had some inside information, which you obviously do, um, and you were like, "All right, Alenda the Dusk Rose." You personally, you know, there's going to be other great vampires, right? Like I'm looking at Legion Lieutenant right now, uh, the two mana Lord. So you know that there's obviously going to be other great vampire lords in the set. What's stopping you from saying buying a thousand of these? Because you know, you know, the card's going to be amazing. Why, why wouldn't you do that and just try to make a buck off of this? I'm just asking. I'm under NDA and I can't legally do that. Uh, I suppose I could just try and do it anyway. I don't have a lot of money to be doing that. <laughs> to be quite honest, I, all I can say is that there's, I guess, not much stopping me from doing it if I really, really tried hard to hide it and do it well, like you know, had other people buy them for me, but I'm not. And also I think I'd be taking a huge risk because nothing is a hundred percent. If there's anything I learned throughout, you know, the release of Ixalan, um, which is the first set that I worked on that released into the real world is cards that I thought were going to do well, didn't. And cards that I didn't think were going to do well, did well. So it's really hard to, to try and pinpoint that. Like it is, almost impossible you know take a look at hostage taker which you would think is is such a powerful card on a raw level but only sees a bit of constructive play it doesn't see a a ton it only sees a little bit and that's a card that i thought was going to do extremely well and yeah it did okay but it's certainly not anywhere to the power level where i thought it would be yeah i mean hostage taker isn't good or anything it it was it was in the deck that won the last pro tour sure but 
hey, what, what <laughs> does that matter, right? We're not we're not keeping score here. If you say it's not any good, I'll just nod my head and 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 keep going. Well, I think that you know it's a it's a good card. It did was in the winning deck of the last Pro Tour, but it's not in Team Energy, which seems to be the most pop prevalent deck right now. And I and you know I'm not saying Hostage Taker is a bad card by any means, but the meta game like shifts and certain cards don't find room. And I think Hostage Taker is a perfect example of one of those cards where you would think that more decks would play it, but the meta game doesn't really allow for it because if you play it against decks like Team Energy, they just get their ETB trigger back if it dies. So, so reading between the lines here, if it's not that great, you're saying that the pilot playing that deck that won the last Pro Tour must have just been absurd, right? Got it right on the nose. I'm All just right. I'm I'm merely boasting your your skill. Thank you, I, and I appreciate the, that compliment. You're welcome. Uh, moving on to uh, the five mana Planeswalker in the set, Angrath the Flame Chained. Uh, it's a five red, black, three black, red, four loyalty, uh, plus one. Each opponent discards a card and loses two life. Minus three, gain control of target creature until end of turn. Untap it, it gains haste. And if it has CMC three or less at the end of turn, sacrifice it. And then minus eight, each opponent loses life equal to the number of cards in his or her graveyard. Well, um, the minus three has the ability to be better than a removal spell, right? Because you're actually gaining control of the creature. You're able to use it however you see fit. And then if it's the correct converted mana cost, it's going to leave the battlefield. So um, I like it, but it's kind of a low loyalty cost for five mana. I'm not sure ticking up and making the opponent discard a card and lose two life. I'm not sure how you know, it doesn't scream of strength, right? Um, and the ultimate also seems almost unusable to me. I mean, I could see some situations where it would be good, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it is a win condition. So I I, I read it as each player, but it is each opponent. So the fact that it doesn't affect you um, when you're going minus eight means that you could just kill your opponent with it. However, paying five, going plus, 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 minus eight, that's kind of a ways away. Though it does work well that you're making your opponent put cards in the graveyard by having them discard and lose two life. So by the time, if your plan works, right, you're able to play this on five and tick it up all the way to eight and then minus, then your opponent should be dead at that point. But it just seems like a plan with a lot of vulnerabilities. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a little torn with this one. Um, again, I went through a lot of changes in the FFL, and I'm not entirely sure how it's gonna how it's gonna do in constructed now. But I I do think it's quite powerful. I think that it's a quite versatile planeswalker because it has a good plus against most control decks and a good minus against more aggressive decks. So I'm I'm definitely interested in seeing where it goes. I think it's definitely gonna be on the verge of seeing play. Um, and it may see play, but I'd like to see it. If I was designing this card, I would have it five as the starting loyalty rather than four. But as is, it's not. It's certainly not an overpowered card like a Gideon or something like that. But if if we're toning down all of the Planeswalkers a little bit, then I think this should fit fine. Huatli Radiant Champion, two green white, three loyalty, plus one. Put a loyalty counter on Huatli for each creature you control. 
minus one target creature gets plus x plus x, where x is the number of creatures you control. Minus eight, you get an emblem with whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card. So personally, I love a good green-white tokens deck, right? This card screams green-white tokens, right? If you have a bunch of creatures in play, you plus it, all of a sudden maybe you're already at eight loyalty, and then you can minus it the next turn and just go crazy. You can also pump up a creature and get in, but I'm not sure yet, I should say, if the cards are there for the green-white tokens deck. So if there's not the support cards around it, I don't see Whatley making a big splash in standard. So we're going to have to see, uh, just because it's not like there's a green-white tokens tribe, right? The green-white tribe is dinosaurs. So in a dinosaur deck, I don't see this fitting very well. So, yeah. I'm sure on this one as well. Uh, I could definitely see it being strong, um, but I'm definitely waiting to see an action at a, at a tournament. Moving along. The next card I want to talk about is Time Stream Navigator. It's a 2-mana 1-1 one, one with Ascend. And for those of you that don't know what Ascend is, Ascend is an ability that happens when you have 10 or more permanents. And once you reach Ascend, you can't lose Ascend. So if you've claimed the city, you can't lose it, even if you go lower than 10 permanents. Um, and it has the ability to UU tap, put Time Stream Navigator on the bottom of its owner's deck, and take an extra turn after this one. Now, the cool thing about Time Stream Navigator is if you have a Sahili Rai in play on 4 loyalty and you play Time Stream Navigator with 4 mana open, you take a minimum of 3 turns. What do you think about that, Seth? I mean, that's a pretty cool interaction that I hadn't even considered. Um, taking 3 turns, that sounds pretty cool. Um I'm not sure. Well, okay. So Sahili is still still legal, but obviously with Felidar Guardian being gone, I'm not sure how much we're going to see it play. But it's definitely a cool interaction. I like the Ascend ability, uh, but it's not going to come into play until much much later in the game, right? So you need to be playing it in a deck that's going to go long. But you also don't necessarily want to have this 2-mana 1-1 one, one in a control deck that just eats a Fatal Push, right? Um, yeah. So I could see this being a powerful sideboard card in some control decks, possibly. Um, being able to take an extra turn is, I mean, it's a very powerful effect. I'd like to see a taking turns deck. Maybe there is maybe there is a deck with this card and Sahili Rai, or or some weird... There might be other weird combos that you might have overlooked with it, but on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a mainstream card. It's going to go into maybe some niche uh, strategies, potentially. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I think this card's a cool card. It's it's one of my favorite designs in the in the set, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how well it does. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty exciting. And I'm happy that you like the Ascend mechanic. Moving along to a Black Dinosaur, one that's been out in the spoiler for quite a bit, uh, Tetsamok, Primal Death, 6 mana, 6-6, six, six, Death Touch. And then it has this cool ability where you can re- you can pay a Black, reveal it from your hand at sorcery speed, and uh, put Prey Counters on creatures. And then when he comes into play, it destroys all the creatures with Prey Counters on them. 
Have there been any other cards that have put Prey Crowners on permanence in the history of the game? I'm going to go with no, although I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, I was I just thought you might know that. Um, because it's a pretty cool counter, right? To be just, I mean, I don't have a, a bag full of Prey Counters, but um, I like to think of my opponents as my Prey, you know? So this card... Just being able to completely destroy my opponents after it, it comes into play. That sounds pretty good. That being said, a lot of the time I don't get to six mana. So uh, I could see it being a, a frustrating card. However, if I see this in a booster pack, I'm going to be taking it. Because, hey, I, I love drafting, so um, why not? Let's go with it. I don't know if you've seen the other Elder Dinosaurs, but have you you know, taken any note to any of them? There's a, an 8-mana 4-8 in white with flying double strike, vigilance, and trample, and indestructible. There's a 6-mana six 6-6 six, six in red that uh, attacks and exiles the top card of each player's library, and you can cast any number of those cards without paying their mana cost. And then there's a 12-mana 12-12 in green that has trample and costs X less, where X is the total power of creatures you control. So these are these are all sweet, sweet cards. Um, I'm excited to have some more dinosaurs to choose from. Now, we need to have the enabler cards also because you can you can't just jam a bunch of expensive dinosaurs into a deck. You have to have, you know, cards like Drover the Mighty. Maybe we'll see that card seen play in standard as a way to ramp out these powerful dinosaurs. I like the Galta Primal Hunter is the one I'm looking at right now, the 12/12 Trample, but this kind of like the Huatli we saw earlier you need a bunch of creatures already in play to make it work. So you need to have a supporting cast around these these big dinos. Um, do you have one that kind of stands out to you in terms of liking it for standard? I think Katsamak is probably the closest one for me for standard. Okay, yeah. Um, and which color is that one? That's the black one. And again, yeah, like I'm... It's sorcery speed the reveal, so it's it can be intensive on the earlier turns. So people have really hyped up this card. I'm not so sure on it, but I do think that it's probably the most standard impactful car, uh, elder dinosaur that we have so far. There is a blue one, I think, yet to be revealed. Okay, I mean it's interesting to me, right? Um, and you just gave us some some key information that there's going to be a blue dinosaur, right? So. I believe in Ixlan, we only had dinosaurs that were Naya-colored. So now maybe there's going to be some crazy, wacky, five-color dinosaur decks. Who knows what we're going to see, right? But if you're willing to expand the colors and move dinosaurs into you know, blue and black, I like that. But the, the fact that it's a black dinosaur, right, Samak, means that there's a downside to that because the, the enabler cards, as far as I know, like the... The cards like the Drover of the Mighties, they're in the Naya colors. So in order to make a dinosaur tribal deck and incorporate black, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. So these are a bit different than regular dinosaurs. These are elder dinosaurs, so they have a bit more of a legendary feel. And they kind of reminisce to me, kind of like uh, the the dragons from Champions of Kamigawa. So I think that's why there's one in each color. Okay. Um, and yeah, so the black, the black dinosaur, I just want to clarify its, its name. It's, it's Tetsimak. Is that right? I mean, I, I can't speak with a hundred percent 
pronunciation on these, but I would believe it's pronounced Tetsumak. I just want to clarify that because you were saying like I thought you were saying like Sumak, and I was like I don't I have no idea what card you're talking about. But okay, so, <laughs> I mean we we can keep talking about the guy that that puts prey counters on opponents creatures because. I mean, it's pretty exciting. All right, let, let's move along. Let's move along to the to the rest of the set. There's still a lot to go over. What are your opinions on the Harbingers in the set? I mean, I like the idea of being able to search for creatures. Um, that is, I, I mean, I, I like Harbingers in general. We saw them in Laura when we're seeing them coming back, and that's exciting. We need more tribal-oriented cards, and... I don't believe in Lorwyn we saw Harbingers make a big splash in terms of standard applicability, but I could see that being different. Looking at some of them, I could see that changing with Rivals. I think there's definitely some interesting room there. Um, There are a lot of powerful tribal creatures, so being able to ensure that you draw them is, is definitely something worthwhile, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, one of the Harbingers did, did end up seeing some play. Yeah, and I think when you look at a Harbinger, you have to realize you're not just searching it and putting it in your hand, which would make it make all of these Harbingers way too good, right? So it's not card advantage in that sense. You do have to put it on top of your deck. Harbingers is the term that we had in Lorwyn, right? I mean, they're not all called Harbinger, but they're the same. Um, for those who are familiar with the Lorwyn creature types, then there were similar merfolk i believe there was a goblin one or an elf one and so on and so forth that you can search for a card um of a specific creature type put it on top and so we're seeing we're seeing a vampire one we're seeing a merfolk one so i mean it's exciting to have those types of effects and to have this tutoring effect so like maybe you see a dinosaur one where you're like okay i want to be playing one copy of an elder dragon because they're very expensive and they're legendary so i can easily do that if i have four copies of a harbinger in my deck because then i can i it it's a search effect right we don't have that many search effects in standard so i like that and these are called forerunners uh they're not called harbingers but they're the same effect as you said and yeah there's definitely a real cost associated with these cards because they aren't going into your hand they're going to the top of your library so Maybe you need a land to go along with the card that you want to search for. And there's there's definitely costs to eliminating the next draw of your deck to be a specific card. I'm interested to see how, how these work out, and uh, hopefully they end up making for some cool strategies. Moving along, uh, a card that I'm actually kind of more excited about now because of the huge impact that Saddle the Wreckage has seen so much play. Admiral's Order is a three-mana counterspell, but uh, it has raid if you attack the creature this turn, you may pay you instead. So what do you think about this card, Seth? I think it's pretty cool. I like that it's in a different color, right? So it seems like it's going to have some some standard play, but I'm not sure... How is it similar to Settle the Wreckage? No, no, I was saying how it's good against Settle the Wreckage. Oh, it's good against Settle the Wreckage. Okay, sure. So... It gives you a free counterspell of sorts for only one single mana. However, I'm not sure that we're going to see blue decks. Blue decks aren't traditionally the, the decks that are that worried about Settle the Wreckage. Because if you think about the blue decks in the format, you've got 
your most of them are control decks, right? Uh, or maybe Sultai Energy. Um, but on the other hand, this is already a cancel, which is kind of all right. Cancel is like already borderline playable. We see disallow in the format. I see this in a pirate deck that cares about cards like you're saying, sell the wreckage. It has to be or protecting your own spell, right? So say you make an attack and you're playing it against a control deck. Now you tap out, but you leave one blue open and you play a big spell. Your opponent tries to counter it and you counter it back. So I could see it being a way to win those counter wars. You know, as you said, a lot of the energy decks, they play blue. So uh, an energy decks sometimes care about Settle the Wreckage. So it would be a nice tool for them to uh, to acquire. And I think that you're right in the sense that pirates will most likely adapt to this. And it's a very unique tool for them. To, so I, I'm pretty excited about this card. I think, I think it will see some play. And I, I want to I go ahead and talk about another blue card here, which is a reprint, Silvergill Adept. I mean, it's a card we see in Modern, right? And I am extremely excited to be seeing that, seeing play in Standard. I think it's going to make the Merfolk Tribe... I mean, I, I think the Merfolk Tribe is going to get a huge boost um, with Rivals. And that's going to be a card that we know is an enabler, uh, a Merfolk enabler. Yeah, I'd seen a ton of play previously, and I'm sure that, you know, if, if Merfolk does well, it will 100% be in the Merfolk deck. So uh, Silvergill adapts a really exciting card, and I hope people are excited to play with it again. Yeah, I mean, so maybe if you get a Merfolk deck, right, now all of a sudden there is a real deck that has a bunch of creatures, and now a card like Admiral's Order has a real place, um, because a Merfolk deck would a Merfolk deck care about Settle the Wreckage? I'm pretty sure it would, right? So maybe we're thinking about a different standard format where there's actually a blue deck that really does, you know, cares about different a different set of cards. Um, and so, yeah, I could see that. All right, let's uh, let's move along. Uh, we have Rekindling Phoenix. It's a 2RR43 flying. When Rekindling Phoenix dies, create an O1 with... At the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice this creature and return Rekindling the Phoenix from your graveyard to the battlefield, and it gains haste. Yeah, and this is this is one of the the coolest cards that I've seen so far. It reminds me of like a Thunderbreak Regent type card that's extremely difficult to actually kill. You have you have to pay a cost to kill it, right? And even if you kill it, you're not really killing it because it it can just come back. So. I mean, I guess you need... I mean, it just seems it seems like a really powerful card. And the fact that it's a phoenix kind of alerts me to it's too good to have a better creature type attached to it. It's too good to be a dinosaur, right? You couldn't make it a dinosaur, or otherwise it would just be... It would go in the dinosaur decks way too easily. Um, but that being said, I see this as a card that has a high enough power level to make an impact. Yeah, I this is a great blocker as well because the turn it comes down, you block, and if like yeah, your opponent could just kill the O one, but they're paying the cost for that, and you know likely traded with whatever it blocked. So yeah, I think this card is really exciting. Um, yeah, I think it probably would be a little too strong as a dinosaur, and I also think it wouldn't be very like flavorful to the card. You know, it's like a phoenix rising from the ashes, so kind of just has to be a phoenix there, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting card, and I'm happy to, to hear that you're excited about it. 
And it seems like a card, and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously I haven't played with any of these cards, but it seems like a card that you would want to play four of in your deck. Because you create that 0-1 elemental, and then if you already have another copy sitting in your deck, in your library, then maybe you're returning that one to, to play. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, kind of, although the trigger happens when it dies, so it would probably be in your graveyard anyway, right? Sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I see where you're coming from, but I'm not entirely sure this needs to be a four of. Okay. No, I think you're right. Okay. Moving along, Form of the Dinosaur. This, for me, is one of my favorite cards in the set just because I think it's really cool. I really enjoyed Form of the Dragon, and, you know, making the new step on that with dinosaurs is really cool. Uh, at six mana, when it enters the battlefield, your life total becomes 15. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, you deal damage to a creature, basically. Uh, form of the Dinosaur deals 15 damage to target creature, and then the the creature deals its damage back to you. Yeah, so this is a little bit different than Form of the Dragon, right? Because you're not going back to 15 each turn, right? You're just once you're going to 15, right? So normally at turn six, I'm at like three life, right? I'm I'm about to die. All right, then I play this form of the dinosaur, and then so it's actually could be a life gain card in that scenario where you're gaining life, but then it also has an additional effect. However, you don't want to be killing huge creatures because then those creatures are gonna be directly inflicting damage on your life total. So it's one of those cards where it's hard to evaluate because it's got different different applications all built into one card. We're not playing in a format where there's a card like Enduring Ideal to search for enchantments, um, or enchantments don't really see. There's not that many enchantments in Standard, right? So I see this having some, maybe as a sideboard card, it's definitely going to be really good against the small creature decks where you're able to just every single turn kill kill a creature, and then... I could see it being good in multiples because say you go down in life total, right? Uh, because you've killed some creatures with your first form of the dinosaur, then you play a second one and you go back up to 15. Would that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I agree with you that I think it's good in multiples. And yeah, this card's definitely not the same as form of the dragon. They're two very different cards, but I do think like it has a lot of flavor and I, I really enjoy it for that reason. So I think this card's really cool. I think it will see some play. And uh, I'm generally pretty excited about it. Yeah, and just having that reoccurring effect each turn, that's always very powerful because you can get you can get a ton of value over the course of the game. However, six mana, you know, I mean, we're not talking about a four mana card. We're talking about a six mana card. So anytime you look at a at a card, it looks cool, but then you also have to think about, all right, is it actually worth the mana cost, right? Very true. All right, uh, let's move along to Glorious Destiny. Uh, it's a two-white enchantment with Ascend. As Glorious Destiny enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creatures you control of the chosen type get plus plus one. And if you have the City's Blessing, they have Vigilance as well. So right off the bat, we're probably looking at like a Vampire's deck with, with this kind of thing. But what are your, what are your thoughts? It seems like a, a card I could see. I I like the idea that it can pump up your entire team. And like you're saying in a Vampire's deck that could have a lot of creatures already in play, it's going to be much more valuable. It also happens to be in white. Um, so there's a lot of things that are 
going for it. I think you could see you could see play. All right. Next, we have another white card, Paladin of Atonement. Two mana, one one. At the beginning of each upkeep, if you lost life last turn, put a plus one's encounter on it, and then when it dies, you gain life equal to its toughness. Okay, well, this is interesting, right? Because it's a two-mana card, but do you actually want to be playing it on turn two? What are the chances that you actually took damage on the first turn? Well, that's going to be completely matchup dependent. Um, but that being said, it is an effect that is going to happen each upkeep. So it's it's not a one-time effect. So yes, you do want to be playing it on turn two, just because, say, if it was when it enters the battlefield, you get the plus one, plus one effects, then you might not want to play it, right? But since each upkeep, you are going to be able to get the bonus, you certainly want to be playing it, getting it into play as soon as, as, soon as possible. But you also don't, you want to be playing it against a deck where you're going to be taking incremental damage, because you don't want to be taking a ton of damage, right? So say you take 10 damage in, on an attack step. You putting 1 plus 1 plus 1 counter on your Paladin isn't going to make that much of a difference. But say you play the Paladin and you're getting hit by 1 Bomac Courier each turn. So then your Paladin is getting plus 1 plus 1 each turn, but you're only losing 1 life. Um, so, And then I like that when when it does die... so. Obviously, this card is a dangerous card because you're getting dealt a lot of damage. If it's good, right? You're being dealt incremental damage each turn. But then when you cash it in, all of a sudden you can get a big life boost. So that being said, all right, that's what the card does. It's kind of an unusual card. We don't see this type of card that often. Is it actually good enough? That's the question everyone wants to know. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if it's going to be good enough because... You need a lot to go right for you to be taking, say, two damage each turn and then making it big. But I like that we're printing more vampires that have applicabilities. And this card is also better with lifelink, right? So if you're taking a bunch of damage but you're gaining it back, and vampires, there's a lot of lifelink vampires out there as well. What is your opinion on this card change once I tell you that you can play it with Shepherd Dunes in your deck? You have to pay a life for white mana for Shevatons. So you can inflict damage upon yourself when you cast this card, ensuring that you will make it a 2-2 on your opponent's turn. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, I just didn't even realize what you were saying. Okay, so so you're saying the fact that you're paying the life for the Dunes makes it so that it comes in as a Grizzly Bear rather than just a 1-1. Yeah. And then you're able to use it reoccurring each, each of your turns, right? So... Yeah, the fact that's definitely a game changer. Obviously, I wasn't even thinking about that interaction. So what Pete's saying is that I was thinking about the application of you losing life from the opponent, right? But you can also cause self-inflicted life loss, which is going to make it a lot better if you're able to control when you lose the life with a card like a damage-causing land like Chef at Dunes. For sure, if you're playing Paladin of Atonement, you want a card like Chef at Dunes in your deck. Yeah, and this card also combos really well with Winding Restrictor. I mean, the mana can get a bit choppy there, but it, it does hit two counters every time, so something to think about. Okay, yeah, I mean, now, when I was looking at the card, I mean, this is the first time I've seen the card, right? So I wasn't thinking about all of the cool things you can do with it. That's why I'm glad Pete is here to kind of make me look like a fool and just say, well, what about Winding Constrictor? What about Chef Newtons? And I'm like, all right, Pete, you have the inside... Uh, yeah, no, it, it's that's definitely cool. So the card just went up a lot in terms of my thoughts about it. 
Okay. Another card with plus removal encounters. Uh, another two cards, actually, we'll talk about them consecutively. Uh, the first is Deep Root Elite. It's a two mana 1-1. One, one. Whenever another merfolk enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus removal encounter on target merfolk you control. So it can actually distribute counters on merfolks. Yeah, I mean, so we're seeing... It's kind of like a... Sort of a Vine Shaper Mystic type of effect, right? Um, where you're putting, you have to put the counter on a Merfolk. I mean, I gotta say, the more Merfolk cards we're, we're seeing, the more it seems like there's a push towards Merfolk. And there's a there's a push towards Vampires as well, but it seems like there's really, there's gonna be a Merfolk deck in, in Standard. I, there's too many good ones now. I mean, there was what, a couple, of, there was Command of Speaker, there was a couple solid ones in Ixalan, but there's a lot of strong, constructed Merfolk that we're seeing here. Um, so I think there's going to be a... There could be a Merfolk deck on par with the Zombies deck we saw in the previous format. And we're even seeing um, similar types of cards that that we did in the last uh, standard format. Definitely see what you're saying. Cryptbreaker is a lot similar to Kamena. I think Cryptbreaker is a better card overall, but um, they're both very interesting. And I'm certainly interested to see. I, I hope that Merfolk does do that. I mean, we, have, we haven't even gotten to these green merfolks that I'm looking at now that, you know, I mean, we can talk about them. Like, there's the, the Jade Light Ranger that double explores. Um, that's an exciting card. So now War, World Shaper, that could be an interesting card, though maybe not as clearly powerful. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of merfolks so far that have been previewed. There's the Deep Root Elite is a two-mana merfolk that is also going to be able to make another Merfolk, give it a plus one, plus one counter is nice, but at the same time, all right, so Deep Root Elite, you like it to come into play as a 2-2, right? The the fact that it's a 1-1 means that the power level of this particular Merfolk, I don't think it's that high. If you just put the counter on itself, then, I mean, it's a 2-2, right? So I see it, I'm not sure it's actually better than Vine Shaper Mystic, but it is a rare, so... I don't know. I mean, it's it's definitely a cool card. And, you know, speaking of Jade Light Ranger, uh, the three mana 2-1 that expo- double explores, uh, that card is is a merfolk, but I also think it's just a, a good card yeah. uh, by itself. So, yeah, I think I think that card's really good. Yeah, I think with the Jade Light Ranger, you, wanna, you definitely want to hit a land on your first explorer because then you're going to already have drawn a card and then get an additional explorer. Because if you hit a spell on top that you really want, then the second expl- and you put it on top, then the second explorer does not really do anything. Would that be correct? Well, it gives it an additional counter. Okay, sure. So it does make it it does make it a four three, but you're not digging you're not digging as deep into your deck. Yeah, that is true. I I, I would imagine it's something like that. I mean, if it's something that you really want on top then you're probably happy enough to just make it a 4-3 and leave it there. But if if you can afford to, to you know, put it in your graveyard, then maybe you try and take for a land. It's, it's tough to say. Like, is Winding Constrictor in play? Because then I might leave both cards on top. <laughs> you know, you're right. And this this does seem really good with Winding Constrictor. In fact, the more we're talking about J-Light Ranger, the more I like it. I think this card is... One of my front runners for just a good standard card because if you if we're talking about a three mana four three where you get to put a good card you want on top, it's still a three mana four three right. It's not that bad right. The worst it is is a four three right. 
I think that the best is when you're going to be able to play it and just immediately draw two cards, like just draw two lands off the top of your deck. All of a sudden, it's a three for one. So I think that the low end is still solid, and the high end, I mean, the upside is really nice. And then once you tack the merfolk creature type onto it, yeah, it, I mean, it seems like it has a ton of potential. All right, uh, moving on, we have Tilanali Summoner. It's a two-mana, one-one with Ascend. And then it says, when you attack with it, you can pay XR. And if you do, create X11 elemental tokens tapped and attacking. And then you exile all of them at the end unless you claim the city. So if you claim the city, you get to keep all the tokens that you made. Yeah. Um, so it's another Ascend card. And now I'm kind of wondering how many Ascend cards there are and if they're all going to be rare. Do we are have the, has there been any common or uncommon ascend card previewed this thus far? Because I, I do see some rare ones. There have been both common and uncommon ascend cards. Uh, I'm looking at some right now. Okay, okay. Now now I do see some. Okay, sure. So um, this card is definitely powerful. Once again, we know that we have to get all the way up to ten permanents, right? Which is it's not the easiest thing to do. That being said, it's a two-drop that is going to get better as the game goes along because of being able to just pump more mana into the X. And then you can ascend it by making a bunch of elementals, right? So that's the general idea of it, is that you're able to make a bunch of elementals and then the elementals count towards your high permanent count. That is the general idea, yeah. The card's kind of designed in such a way that it's actually allowing you to ascend yeah so that's pretty cool i think it's i like the design of it there's a lot of interesting cards here pete so i'm kind of i'm on my toes a little bit here trying to because they're not straightforward cards right like when we look at tilanali summoner it's kind of hard to immediately analyze if this card is going to be played in standard or not i mean maybe it's good enough to be played in rami and Abred, right as like a you know, a, a decent two-drop that, you know, can make a bunch of 1-1s of one that are attacking, kind of similar to Kari Zev. Probably not in mono-red, okay? Probably not, but um, I like I like the idea of the card for sure. I think it's a really cool card. I could definitely see it seeing play. I could also see it just never seeing the light of day. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of cards. Like, there's a lot of really cool, unique designs in the set. It's, like, gotten me really excited to be playing with this set in standard. So I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is literally like yesterday was the first time I looked over the spoiler, so I'm still processing everything. I'm sorry for those that are listening to me and have maybe thought about all of the cool combinations uh, with some of these cards that you know. But this is what you have to do, right? You have to dissect cards and start to really think about them and process them, and it takes time. You can't, especially with rares, right? That have all of this text on them. We haven't seen the ascend mechanic before, right? So. Um, it's hard to immediately, I mean, for you, you've designed the card, so you have a little bit more inside information, but for me, it's hard for me to immediately see it, to look at it and immediately know this card is going to be great or not, because there's a lot going on with it. I totally agree. I, I think like it's wise to often just kind of go through the spoiler and then, you know, wait a day and then go through it again and just kind of see if you can rekindle any ideas and just kind of branch along in like just information and and as you were saying just like it's a lot to process 
All right, so moving along, we have Seafloor Oracle. It's a 2UU23 uh, Merfolk Wizard. Whenever a Merfolk you control deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. So it's Biden of Thassa on a Merfolk. I'm seeing a bit of a pattern, Pete. Are you sensing it as well? What's, what's that? You don't know? I don't. I mean, it's a Merfolk. That's the pattern, right? I guess that is true. We have been talking about a lot of Merfolk recently. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if there's just... This isn't the full spoiler. I'm wondering if there's just an abnormal amount of Merfolks that have been previewed at the start because maybe all of the powerful ones have already been previewed and there's a bunch of powerful pirates that we haven't seen yet, for instance. But, um, I mean, this card is good, right? Like, Merfolk traditionally don't have evasion. is going to make it a little bit worse because it's not like your Merfolk are flying over and easily hitting the opponent necessarily. As soon as you start drawing cards with this thing, I could see it the game just getting completely out of hand. I, I think this is quite a good card. Um, I think it's a staple for any Merfolk deck. And yeah, I think I think it's good. It's how does a, it how does it stack up to Master of Waves? That's what I want to know. I think it's probably worse than Master of Waves, right? Like Master of Waves was so strong. Was it though? Because if you if you play it and you only have one blue mana symbol, then it only makes one two one. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I just associate Master of Waves with having like at least three blue symbols in play because the deck played so many cards that had so many symbols in, in, in it. I think you're right. Master of Waves was probably better than this, but the fact that you can play this, attack, immediately draw cards, and then even if they kill it, you've already gotten value, that's different than Master of Waves where you play it, you can play it, and then your opponent can untap and use with a removal spell, and you never got any value from it. Except for actually some additional damage you got from the plus one plus one of the Master of Waves itself. All right, uh, let's let's move along. We have another card in the reveal cycle. We have Daring Buccaneer. It's an R two two. As an additional cost to cast it, you have to reveal a pirate or pay two. So essentially, you're really wanting to have a pirate in your hand. Otherwise, you're paying three mana for a two two. Yeah, I mean this. I think that you'd be crazy to play this <laughs> this in a deck that doesn't have pirates in it, right? I mean, I guess in limited, I mean, in limited, you don't have to have that many pirates for it, right? I mean, it's still a three mana. Well, you you, you still need some. Uh, I, sh- I should take that. <laughs> you need pirates. Okay, do, do not play this in a deck that doesn't have a bunch of pirates. All right, so it's a pirate card. That being said, I mean, it's an Asamaru. It's a one. It's a one mana two two, which it's gonna be good, right? If you're an all-pirate deck. No, the, this card is going to be a good creature. If you're playing pirates in your deck and you can realistically cast on turn one, you know, a good percentage of the time, then this card is, is going to be a solid beater. And one thing we're seeing with the design of these cards is that one mana 2-2, two, two, that's kind of, like, that's as good as it gets, right? Is paying one mana getting a 2-2, two, two, right? You're, there's, n- there's not really many, if any, cards, at least in standard, where you're getting a one mana 3-3, three, three. Like, there's Toolcraft Exemplar, which can potentially be 3 power, but most of the time, paying 1 and getting a 2-2, two, two, you're not just getting that for free, right? There has to be some additional cost, kind of like Commander Speaker, where you need you need to be playing both blue and green for it to be good. So, I like this card. Yeah, I think 1 mana 2-1 is like the flat rate. Okay, we'll give this to you. But 1 mana 2-2 two, two is definitely a premium, and you have to pay for it. So, yeah. I, I think that this is certainly a cost, but if you know, you can manage to get enough pirates in your deck, then it's not that big of a cost. 
filling out the last of the cycle of the reveal that we've been spoiled so far, um, we have a rampant growth that requires you to reveal a dinosaur. Otherwise, it costs three. Yeah, and so this goes along with the idea of the dinosaurs wanting – you need to have a lot of lands in play or, or a way to cast these cards. And so we've actually gotten to a point where rampant growth has become too good for standard. The, the card rampant growth, right? Um, so you actually need to tack on something additional to it, which it's a little bit unfortunate, right? I, I liked rampant growth personally. I had no problem with it when it was standard legal. It it was just another card, but I think that um, searching lands out of your deck and being able to cast these expensive spells, it it works well with the dinosaurs, right? So most of the time, if you're playing it in a deck with a lot of dinosaurs, it's just going to be a rampant growth, two mana, search your library uh, for land, and move on from there. So I think it's going to be good. It's going to go into the big dinosaur decks. Yeah, I never really thought that I would utter the phrase, back in my day, I didn't have to reveal a dinosaur to play Rampant Growth. Yeah. But that's where we're at, sadly. Yeah, I mean, and it's not that much of a cost, right? Some Like, if you're playing it in a, a dinosaur deck where it doesn't, first of all, it does not fit in a deck that doesn't have dinosaurs, which is the theme with a lot of these cards, right? You have to play it in a specific tribal-based deck, which it's cool, right? But you know that this isn't just like a blue-green good stuff ramp card, right? Three mana is a little bit too much for the effect. But if you have a bunch of dinosaurs, then maybe every once in a blue moon it costs three, but most often, especially on turn two, it's going to be two mana, and that's exactly what you're looking for. The next card we have is called Mysterious N. It's a two-mana enchantment. When Mysterious N enters the battlefield, exile target creature with converted mana cost 3 or less an opponent controls. And then if it leaves the battlefield, instead of them getting the creature back, they get a 3-3 dino with trample. It's vulnerable to any type of enchantment removal, obviously. That's, that's the main downside of it, is that if it actually leaves the battlefield, then we have a problem, right, at that point. But there's not that many cards that actually that deal with enchantments right in the format that being said i'd like to see it be any creature i don't think that would necessarily i mean it would be good right it'd be like journey to nowhere if it was exile a creature of any converted mana cost rather than three or less the fact that it's three or less it's very unfortunate i think on this card um that being said so that kind of makes it go from potentially strong constructed card to all right it's a cyborg card now against decks that are very low to the ground. Like it does answer a card with unearth, right? So like you can pay to get rid of an Earthshaker Kenra or something like that. But um, I mean, it's going to see playing limited. The fact is, is that there's not that many ways to get it off the battlefields. But um, that being said, we're, we're downgrading right from journey to nowhere significantly because there's two negative factors tacked into this card that make it worse than Journey to Nowhere. I think Journey to Nowhere is in that same power level of card where you really wouldn't see something like that, and that's why we have so many stipulations on this card. And and that being said, I should I should say that I wasn't realizing this factor, though, is that when it leaves the battlefield, you're, it's not like an Oblivion Stone where the opponent gets the creature back. They only get a 3-3 dinosaur. So maybe maybe I was thinking about that the wrong way, right? Maybe the fact that when it leaves the battlefield, 
the opponent gets a 3-3 dinosaur, maybe that's actually better for you than your opponent getting whatever you exiled. You would certainly have them get a 3-3 dino than their rogue refiner back or something like that. Moving along down the white cards, we have Sky Marcher Aspirant. It's a 1-mana, 2-1 vampire with Ascend, and when it's Ascended, it has Flying. Okay, um, so yeah, this is it's a pretty straightforward card. I like it. Like we were saying before, kind of 1-mana, 2-1. Now that it's only, quote-unquote, a 2-1, you can have that boosted upside on it, which is um, that it can have Flying. And any aggressive deck in Standard needs one drops right if there's no one mana beater then the deck just doesn't exist right so having more vampires that are aggressive and the fact is that is that vampires can churn out tokens and tokens make it easier to ascend it's a role player in an aggressive deck i see it being good with the so one card that hasn't seen a lot of play from ixlan is the the lord right the three mana two two legendary lord maverin fane right so this could work really well with maverin fane um in that sort of strategy yeah i totally agree i think this is a staple for any vampire deck out there and i think the vampire was needing some one drops and hopefully this is good enough the job done we're seeing a theme right where ixalan because it was only one set of an entire block so to speak the tribal decks were not there right we just didn't see good enough tribal decks so we're seeing a huge focus being put on tribal decks to the point that clearly there's a hope on your end, right? That at least some of these decks, be it vampires, be it merfolk, they're going to be good enough. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, it's a tribal set. It's obvious we want to we want the tribes to do well, so we we pushed for some constructed power. I kind of thought that vampires might have gotten there with Ixalan, but I, I hope that they get there now with rivals and. I think Merfolks is going to get there. I think, I honestly, I think all of the tribes I hope get there because there really is a lot of power in all of these different tribes, um, whether it be ramping with dinosaurs or hexproof like kind of threats that are swarming the board with Merfolk or swarming the board with vampires with Lifelink, down to like a kind of like a fairy kind of trickster feel with pirates. I think they all have something unique going for them. Yep, and so far. Based on what I've seen so far, lots of powerful merfolk and vampires. I'd like to see some more pirates. Maybe we're getting to those. I guess there are some black pirates maybe we haven't talked about. Yeah. Uh, so moving along, the last colored card I want to talk about before we move on to some of the other multicolored cards is uh, Thrashing Brothodon. It's a 1GG 3-4 with one sacrifice it to destroy target artifact or enchantment, and it's a dinosaur. Yeah, this card is pretty cool because it's kind of it's in the same realm as creatures that have traditionally seen play not only in standard but in other formats in modern, right? So we're seeing we've seen cards like Quasali Pride Mage and Reclamation Sage and those types of effects. They they see play, you know, not just in standard as I was saying. So Thrashing Brontodon, uh, when you compare it to Quasali Pride Mage, uh, a good card is it's a three mana three four so already solid body right really nice body to it um and then you can cash it in as a removal spell so it's definitely good um now the question is going to be in terms of standard we we know about search for a as one of the powerful enchantments how many 
powerful, and we know about gear hogs. We know about some powerful artifacts and enchantments. Are there enough of them? Because if there's if there's a standard format where there's no there's no decks playing powerful artifacts or enchantments, the card is not good enough, right? It's, but as long as there's some, is it main deck worthy? Is it a sideboard removal spell slash creature? It can fill multiple different roles. I agree. Uh, I think it's a good rate. I could see it seeing main deck play if there's a demand for artifact and enchantment hate. And if not, I think it's a great sideboard card. And I think it's rated in such a way that, yeah, it's a dinosaur, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in, in dinosaur decks. So I think that it's uh, it's an interesting card, and I hope people enjoy it. Well, thank you for, for designing it. You're welcome. All right, moving along to the gold cards on the bottom, we have Protein Raider. It's a one blue-red 2-2. Two, two. Shapeshifter Pirate. Raid it is a clone, actually. Okay, uh, Protein Raider. So... Now we're kind of getting into some of the spicier pirates. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, right, when you play this, and if, if you play this on turn three, there may not be any great creature to copy. So you may just be copying your two drop, which isn't that exciting. But later in the game, maybe it's doing something better than that. It seems like a pretty weird card. It's another one of those, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. But that's what pirates do, right? They have have different applications and you see the shapeshifter creature type you know that this is going to be one of those cards where you're you're scratching your head you're realizing all right what type of matchup is it if my opponent has a great creature on the board then all of a sudden the raid is tougher because your opponent can block whatever you're attacking with so it makes it more difficult to raid however in an evasive deck right maybe your first pirate is evasive so you're able to easily attack play Protean Raider, copy something like, who knows what it is, maybe it's a Ripjaw Raptor, something, you're able to upgrade it um, a little bit. I mean, it's definitely a cool card. All right, moving on to, we already spoke a little bit about, uh, there's also a Vampire Lord, we spoke about that also, though, I think, uh, two mana, two, two, other Vampire Control was one. Yeah, and so do we know if there's going to be corresponding pirate and dinosaur lords similar to the legion lieutenant and the merfolk mistbinder or those those just haven't been spoiled we can we can guess you may you may know secretly obviously you you do know but um for the rest of us we don't have any information on those yet but we can make guesses that it's reasonably likely that there's going to be a pirate lord similar to those it's interesting <laughs> um, I, I knew that's what you were going to say peter just be like okay let's move on can't say it's well, not well, sense. Have you seen Dire Fleet Neckbreak with a two black red, three two with attacking pirates you control get plus two plus zero? Okay, so so yeah, that's it's not the same, right? These the the two mana lords for two mana a lord is is what where you want to be. This card is nothing similar to those. Um, it's four mana. It's not on the same power level. Also, the problem with pirates is it's hard to get a lot of them. So it's more difficult to go wide with pirates, I think, than it is with vampires or with merfolk. So Dire Fleet Neckbreaker is it could it could be, right? This could be that it is the Pirate Lord. If that's the case, it's just significantly worse than the corresponding vampire and merfolk lords. I'm not entirely sure how good this card is. I think the fact that it immediately affects all future like if I play this card and I attack with pirates, they're immediately affected, is pretty strong. 
So if you go, you know, if you curve out with some pirates and go turn one, two, two, reveal a pirate or maybe even this guy, and then turn two, you play a pirate and say, say turn three, you like skip and maybe you have to hold back for your opponent to play the creature. But then on turn four, you play this guy and attack with both your guys and they're pretty big. Yeah, I think you're thinking optimistically here. I think this card is is not going to see any play in, in Standard. It's going to be a good card in Draft if you're in a Pirate deck, but once you start printing two mana Lords, and then you print a four mana Lord-ish card that is not even necessarily better than a two mana card, it's pretty similar in power level to the, the two mana ones of the other archetypes, you know it just has to be it's just not going to see play. That's how I see it. Yeah, I mean, I totally sympathize with your view. Like, two mana is, is light years different from four, and they're, you know, at a premium at two. But I do think that Dire Fleet Neckbreaker has some potential. It may be small, but I think it's some. All right, let's move on to uh, Awakened Amalgam. It's a four mana star star, and its power and toughness are equal to the number of differently named lands you control. All right, so you're throwing another card in the mix that is, uh, it's interesting. It's a cool card. First of all, this is, it's, it's a sweet card, right? These days, it's hard to design cards that are unique because there's been so many sets before this that um, you've had the chance to design cool cards like this. I don't know that I can immediately think of a card that is similar to this. That being said, that's about all I have to say about it That's that's good. Um, in terms of how, you know, its power level. I don't think it's going to be... I mean, it's a nice card. It's cool. I mean, it's sweet. It's not going to see standard play. Once you pay four, it comes in optimally, right? It comes in as a 4-4. Four, four. If you have four different lands, then it upgrades to a 5-5. Five, five. Even at that rate, it's probably not good enough. Um, then once you count the fact that you're not going to have a deck with 24 different lands right so it's a casual card which and you know it's a sweet card that's how i see it yeah i so in the ffl i definitely built decks around this card and it's really cool and i do think that you actually can get decks that have like a wide variety of lands like maybe not 24 different lands but you know i think 19 or 20 different lands is doable uh because we have all the deserts in Amonkhet and Hour of Devastation along with Hour of Promise and you can kind of just like get a huge density of deserts in play. Oh boy, Pete, you you were really in the trenches if you were if you were finding decks that were 20 different lands in standard. Props to you, but I mean, you're go how far after out of your way do you have to go in order to make this card not even good. It doesn't it doesn't have good. I mean, I'm trying to say nice things about it because it's a cool card, but I mean, you're really stretching. You're really stretching. I have to say that. Listen, at least I could say that I did my due diligence, all right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I Listen, I wouldn't be surprised if this card saw some amount of play. All right. Would you like to make a, a friendly wager no. on that? Okay. No, I would not like to, Seth. Thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, let's wrap it up with one last card. Um, it's a gold card, Journey to Eternity. One black-green enchant creature you control. When enchant creature dies, return it to the battlefield under your control, then return... It flips, so then return it 
to the battlefield transform and then the flip side adds a mana of any color to your mana pool and then for five three black green you could tap it and return a creature from your graveyard to the battlefield all right so this card is i mean we haven't seen that many like nantuka husk type cards right that you're gonna be able to easily sacrifice your own creature um but that's where it's going to work best is if you if you're able to easily cash in whatever creature you put on it and then transform it kind of at will um but i mean it's a powerful card which is why it has to be a black green card right you can't just make it two two colors one black because then it fits into way too many different decks yeah i mean i could i can definitely see the applications once you're able to transform it into the uh, the cave of eternity, the land having a reusable zombify. That's pretty good, right? This is not a card I would just write off, right? Um, I see this as being a card that has it's got potential for sure. And if the right cards are around it, you know we've seen search for a scanner kind of go off in terms of popularity. We've seen some of the other flip enchantments um, see play as well, and I I could see uh, journey eternity being good. It's funny because like a year, almost a year has passed, or maybe it's even been a little bit longer than a year where, you know, I was kind of like creating these cards and drafting these cards and a card like a journey to an eternity where like we, we, you know, we, we tested it in the FL, we, we did our due diligence, but now I'm like seeing it almost a year later and I'm like, huh, you know, I just like kind of forgot about this. And I, I just like, it happens every so often where I'll see a card and I'll be like, this card's really cool. I, f- I forgot we did this, but I, I actually, it gets me like kind of re-excited. And I think, I think that's one of these cards. Like this card can combo well with Walking Ballista. Yeah, the creature will, like the Walking Ballista will die when it comes back, but it's kind of like a way you can trigger it yourself. Yeah, and I think that we're really looking for something a little bit better than Walking Ballista to transform it, but you'd like to put it on a creature that is not only going to die but you're also going to be you're going to benefit from it dying and then you're going to get to flip it which is an additional benefit it could be good it could be very good in in a mid-range we want cards like like the flesh bag marauders that we were seeing you know in a couple uh couple couple years before this if we see those types of cards this the sky's the limit on this thing so it's it's wednesday night uh for those of you that are listening that's that's when we're recording uh, tomorrow, my article goes up on Star City Games. I'll be previewing a card for Rivals of Ixalan, actually. Uh, so, Seth, be on the lookout for that. You know, at, at 11 a.m., check it out. I hope that you all enjoy it. I hope that you enjoy it, Seth. Uh, I hope that you had fun coming on the cast. I really appreciate it. We talked about so many different cards. This podcast is probably going to be, like, way over an hour, but that's awesome. Um, and, yeah, uh, anything you want to say, Seth? Um, just that, yeah, it's, it's always hard to look at new cards and evaluate them without knowing any context. Um, so that's what we're doing. This is, for me, this is very new to me looking at these rivals of Ixalan cards, but, um, it's, it's fun to be able to do it with someone who has a little bit more background with playing with them being that you were involved in the actual design. So it's a unique situation and I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Seth. You're the nut. All right. I appreciate being the nut, but I assume that there's other nuts as well because there's been other episodes of this podcast. And 
you may have said that to other people, but I mean, I'll take the compliment. It's actually the first time I've said it to someone on the cast. Like I've said it, oh, this person's the nut or whatever, but I've never said it to the person I was interviewing because I was trying it out for the first time. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Will you make the nut, ex- will you exclusively give me the nut or, or are you going to distribute your nuts to other other players? <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's too early to tell. I, I need to come up with a good punchline and, and that might be it. So I, I can't promise anything, but I mean, that does not disregard the fact that you are the nut. So. All right. So that, that does completely disregard what you just said, uh, because you're saying that it's just a punchline. You're going to say it to whoever you're podcasting with and you really, that's really offensive, Pete. I, I just, I can no longer accept being the nut in, in this situation. Wow. So that, that really... I, I think you're taking this a little too hard. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, Pete is clearly the nut, and whoever he calls the nut is, you know, equally, well, can't possibly be equally the nut, but is also in the nut clan per se. All right, thank you, Seth. Thank you for going on this nut tangent with me. All right, uh, that's a wrap, everybody. Thanks, Seth. Thank everybody for listening. 